Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Father God, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunities that we have to open it, to read it, to think on it, to meditate about it, and and to seek to both understand you and then apply it to our lives. Um, Your word is a gift to us. It's a treasure to your people. It's a comfort for us. It gives us understanding. It helps us to know who you are. It helps us to know our world. It helps us to know ourselves. And it helps us to make sense out of things. And so I pray tonight that as we study, as we think, as we discuss this next section of systematic theology, I pray that you would not just give us information that we can store away in our minds, but give us truth that we can rest our lives upon, that we can uh, walk upon as we live in this world. Help us to uh, apply these things in a way that would honor you. And Lord, I do pray that you bless our time together. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is week three of our study uh, on systematic theology. And our topic this evening is still going to be the doctrine of Scripture. So the way that we started this out a couple of weeks ago is to say, what is the foundation upon which all of systematic theology is built? And that foundation is the scriptures. Uh, If theology is the knowledge of God, the study of God, the logic of God, then the clearest and and best way for us to study God is to study his word. Not just to study our own thoughts or even just to study nature itself, but to study God's word because God has revealed himself to us in his word. So we started there. And then we talked about the need to delight in the Word of God. Last week, we talked about two attributes of the Scriptures. We're building a bibliology, a foundational understanding of the Scriptures themselves. So that's the starting point for systematic theology, the Bible. And we started with two attributes. Anybody remember what those were? The clarity of Scripture was one of them, that God's Word is clear, it is discernible. We can read it and understand, and God assumes that we're supposed to be able to read it and understand. Remember, we talked about Jesus saying to the Pharisees, have you not read? And the implication is, you should have read this, and you should have been able to understand this, because the Bible is clear to us. Not every passage is as clear as other passages, but the Bible is intended by God for us to be able to read it and understand it. And because it is God's Word, it is trustworthy in what it says and what it teaches us about ourselves and about our world and about our God. So we we learned those two things last week, or at least we just touched on those two things, the clarity of Scripture and the trustworthiness of Scripture. Tonight we're going to talk about two additional attributes of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture and the authority of Scripture. Uh, so let me just start by asking a question. Have you guys, how many of y'all heard the term inerrancy applied to the Bible? Okay, so this is not an uncommon subject. Um, what, what do you believe it means for us to say that the Bible is inerrant? It's without error, okay. Anything else would you add to that? I would say that when we say it's without error, we don't mean that it's without like scribal transmission errors, like like typos, basically. Okay. But we do uh, the, the the intended, I guess the the reading or the intended meaning of each verse would be without error, right? Yeah, there's some. I'll sp- phrase it. <laughs> there's some specific language that we use. Yeah, go ahead. Without error in its original meaning. Right, so we, we would understand, and we even stated it's part of our statement of faith as a church, that we believe that the Bible, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, are without error in the original manuscripts. And what that means is when it was originally written, um, that there was no error in God's transmission of Scripture. Now, when you start translating that into various languages down through the ages, there's going to be changes, there's going to be, like you said, scribal errors, and it's our goal, it's our job to be as close as we can be to those original manuscripts in our modern interpretation, or I should say that, our modern translations. But yes, we do put a caveat on that. And I'll explain some of that as we keep going. Anything else? Anything else you might add to that? Your understanding of inerrancy. Go ahead. I would say you have to limit inerrancy to uh, sort of the intent of the 
the scripture. In other words, you can't you can't say that you can push the words any way you want, and and it will still pass your inerrancy criteria. It's, you, you have to take it for what it, how it's intended. Yeah, and and those kind of issues get brought up when you're de- dealing with different translations. When you're translating um, a Bible from a more dynamic perspective or a more literal perspective, um, then you're not necessarily dealing with uh, translation as much as you're dealing with interpretation. Right? So the doctrine of inerrancy is really important because if it is inerrant in its original manuscripts, in its original intention, then it's really important for translators to be as close to that original intention as they possibly can be as they translate into modern language. Any others? Most works of systematic theology will, especially older systematic theologies, if you were to pull one off the shelf and you were to begin reading it, most works of systematic theology are not going to address inerrancy if they're older. And, and mainly, they're not going to address the issues of inerrancy uh, because the inerrancy of Scripture was just naturally assumed. It was understood uh, that the Bible is without error, that it is clear, that it is true, um, that, that God has preserved His Word in such a way that we can understand the original intent. But um, about 150 to 200 years ago, with the advent of some new ideas, some new philosophies, and uh, different forms of higher criticism that have crept in, the issue of inerrancy has come to the forefront. And so modern systematic theologies will put inerrancy not just as you know, a word that they'll define, but as an entire section or chapter that they'll deal with, uh, just to make sure that the people that are going to read their book understand where they stand. Critics have sought to diminish the authority of the Bible by claiming that it contains errors. And they might claim that it contains errors in a whole facet of different ways. But the truth of the matter is, the claims of errors do not stand up to what we know to be the historicity of Scripture, nor does it stand up to what Scripture says about itself. And I know that's circular reasoning, um, but I'll accept circular reasoning in these cases because this is the higher authority. So Proverbs 30, verse 5 says this, Every word of God proves true, and He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Psalm 12, verse 6 says, The word of the Lord, what? The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace, purified seven times. Hebrews 6, 18 and Titus 1 both make this claim that it is impossible for God to lie. We lie. Our words are not pure. It is often the case that our words do not prove true, but God is not like us. God is perfect in His character and in His attributes and in His transmission. We'll learn about that as we continue to study theology. But His words are not like our words. His words are like Him. So that's a little bit of an introduction to this this issue of inerrancy, but I want to define it. We've We've had some loose definitions here, but let's give a a more clear definition, or at least one that we can work from. Defining biblical inerrancy might look like this. The traditional evangelical view um, says that the Bible is inerrant, meaning that it is completely true in what it says, and it makes no claims that are not true. So it's telling you what it does believe, what it affirms, and what it also denies. In a little more modern language, Wayne Grudem, I told you about Wayne Grudem's systematic theology and recommended if you've never started to study a systematic, that might be a good place to start. He defines inerrancy in this way. He says, the inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. I kind of like the other definition because it gives you, you know, what it does and what it doesn't mean, but that's a little bit easier for us to understand. The point of both of these definitions is to make clear that what we understand the Bible to do is that it always tells the truth. And it tells the truth about everything that it talks about. Some are willing to accept what they call a limited inerrancy. And this view is becoming more and more popular in the church today. Let me illustrate what 
limited inerrancy would be and why I don't think it's the approach that we should take. So here, here are two statements, um, and they are similar but different. The first statement is this. The Bible is the only inerrant rule of faith and practice. The Bible is the only inerrant rule of faith and practice. Here's the second one. The Bible is inerrant only when it speaks of faith and practice. Do you see the difference? These two statements sound similar, but they're saying very different things. The first one sets the Bible apart as the only true and inerrant rule of faith and practice. The second statement implies that it is true and inerrant only when it speaks of certain things, which would also imply that it's in error when it speaks of other things. In other words, if the Bible is only to be trusted when it speaks of matters of faith and practice, then it can't be trusted when it speaks of matters of history, and science, and humanity, and culture. And that's the argument. That's one of the arguments. It's not the argument, but it's one of the arguments. But the whole purpose of Scripture is to say everything that it does say on whatever subject that it speaks on. And it is understood that every one of God's words in Scripture was deemed by Him to be important for us. And no one trusted the inerrancy of Scripture as much as Jesus did. Maybe we'll get into that a little bit next week. But limited inerrancy, or this idea that, that limited inerrancy is the route we should go, it seeks to limit what we can trust to be true in the Word of God and therefore limit the authority of the Bible by asserting that it is untrue or flat-out wrong when it speaks on other subjects. But the Bible doesn't leave any room for such limitations on its truthfulness. The Word of God is without error. Now let me just ask a question. Why do you think the debate about inerrancy has become such a large issue at this moment of time? What is it about this, the last 150 years that has made this such a key issue? Because what? people like their sin. Because people like their sin. Christy gets right to the heart of the matter because people like their sin. I think there's some truth to that. If, if I can undermine the Scripture's authority and sufficiency by saying, well, it's, it's flawed over here, therefore what it says about this is probably not true, so I don't have to really listen to it, then yeah, it can undermine the conviction of, the, of sin. What else? I think just postmodernism and people just choosing the truth that they like if it's the way they want to live, you know, whatever seems true to them, they can choose kind of. Yeah. I mean, since the Enlightenment on, we've seen a, a shift away from a traditional understanding that truth is going to be determined by something outside of us to the idea that truth is going to be determined by what's inside of us. Right? That's a postmodern mindset. Um, and, and those ideas, those philosophies, do undermine a trust in the Scriptures, and, and not just Scriptures, but in a lot of different things. Any, any other reasons that you think that this might become, have become an issue in our own modern day? Philosophy? Sin? I do wonder if people... As you read through the Old Testament, um, especially, and you read the history of Israel and read about the things that they were doing, and I wonder if people misunderstand the, that it's recording history, not saying that's right, not saying what they were doing is good. Sure. It's just a, and therefore they don't. Yeah, there's a difference. I'm glad you brought that up because I, hadn't, I don't have this in my notes at all. But, but there is a difference as we read Scripture. And we need to understand this. There's a difference between what God prescribes and what the Bible describes. Think about the, the difference between those two words. There's a difference between what God commands of His people and what God's people do in, a, in disobedience to His commands. What, what God prescribes for us to do and what God describes for us to do. And, and if we don't know the difference between those two things and, and the intention of the Bible, um, then someone might read it and think, well, God told His people to do all of these things and all of these things. And, and God did tell His people to do some things that many would believe that we're above that morally in this culture. We'll talk about that later. 
Um, but a lot of what you see in Scripture is not the prescription of God. It's just a description of man and his own sin. And the Bible doesn't shy away from that. The Bible doesn't present God's people in this beautifully perfect light. It shows them us, warts and all. Because we're not the hero of the story. God is the hero of the story. A follow-up question. If there were small errors affirmed by Scripture, how would it affect the way you read the Bible? In other words, if we just dispense with this whole notion of inerrancy, and we just say, you know what, we're not going to worry about that. There's probably some errors in there, and, and, and we're just going to accept that. How would it affect the way you read the Bible? It just introduced doubt, like at every point. You know, does this was this really what they meant to write down, or maybe 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 if this wasn't even originally in the Bible, or all sorts of things. Yeah, it, it introduces doubt. I like that. Um, it undermines our confidence in the Bible as an authoritative word from our Creator, right? And and it leaves us to try to determine at some level what's true and what's not. We'll talk about that in a minute. But let's think about some, how can um, we be consistent in our understanding of what the Bible does and how the Bible presents things and how the Bible was written in a different time and a different culture and with certain language parameters. And, and let's try to apply a view of inerrancy consistently. Let's talk about some of the ways that we do this. Number one, the Bible can be inerrant and still speak in ordinary language of everyday speech. And let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Let's think about the way we use numbers today to describe events. Let's think about the way we use numbers. If a reporter comes on the news tonight and tells us, I, I pray this won't be the case, but let's say that it happens, and a reporter comes on the news tonight and says, 2,000 soldiers were killed in a battle over a Ukrainian city. But the actual numbers were 1,968. Should we consider that report to be in error? It would be wrong for that reporter to claim that no one died, and it would also be wrong for that reporter to claim that 10,000 soldiers died. But we don't generally call into question the truthfulness of a report when the figures are as close together as 1,968 and 2,000. We accept the reporter's choice to approximate the number of deceased soldiers so long as the de degree of accuracy is quite high. Would you agree with that statement? I'll give you another example. People ask me all the time because people are just really concerned with attendance. People ask me all the time, how many people come to worship at your church? And I'll be really honest with you, I have no idea. I, I, we don't count unless we realize that we need more chairs, and then we kind of count to determine how many more chairs we need to buy and bring in the room, right? But otherwise, we don't count. We don't count Sunday school. We don't count all of those things. It's just not something that we've ever done. It's not something that we do. But I can estimate based on the number of chairs currently in this room. There are roughly 300 seats in this room. To be exact, there's about 308 or 310 seats in this room. And so when I look out at the auditorium, as I usually do, and I see, you know, how many empty seats there might be, I can kind of gauge what that's going to look like. And I might say, well, there's, on one given Sunday, there might be 180 people here. On another Sunday, there might be 230 people here. And so generally what I will say, if someone asks about how many people attend your worship on Sunday, I'll say somewhere right around 200, maybe a little more. Now, am I lying by doing that? Well, it's not an accurate number, but it's an understood way that we communicate. I'm estimating that, hey, it's probably based on the data that I have taken in, just by observation, it's probably around 200 people. No one's ever called me a liar for doing that because I didn't take an individual body count of every single one. That's a normal way that we communicate in today's speech. And the Bible contains elements that are similar with regard to the number of men killed in battle, or the relative distance between two cities, or even the number of people in a crowd gathered around Jesus. In the case of census data in the scriptures, 
Christy mentioned the Old Testament. In the case of census data, the scriptures, the numbers are highly specific. But in the case of crowd estimates, the numbers seem to be more of an approximation. This is an accepted form of everyday speech, and it doesn't call into question the inerrancy of the biblical story. Even though we tend to be more precise in such measurements today, we still accept a certain degree of precision um, in everyday communication. The intention of the Bible is not to communicate the exact number, but to give an, uh, an accurate approximation of who is there. And that's one of those issues that people get bent out of shape about. That this is not accurate. This is not true. We don't necessarily know. But we do know that like other books, biblical statements can be imprecise when it comes to things like numbers and distances and still be true. Because inerrancy has to do with truthfulness, not the degree of numerical precision which every event is reported. There are some other things that we can understand about the scriptures still falling into that category of, of inerrancy because it's still communicating truthfully. The Bible can be inerrant and include loose quotations. Have you ever tried to quote somebody but you just don't remember exactly how they said it? You ever been in that place? Sure you have. Right? You've been in a position where you're, you're trying to quote somebody. Maybe it was a coach from high school or maybe it was something you read in Scripture or maybe it was something funny somebody said on a movie and, and you thought it was right to share with the person you were with in the moment but you couldn't quite get it word for word so you restate the quote in your own words while maintaining the overall sentiment and point of the original statement. It happens to us all the time. This is the common way in which we speak. Now, if we're submitting a paper um, to our professor in college and we have to follow MLA format and all that kind of stuff, well, we're probably going to do our due diligence or we're going to look that quotation up and we're going to cite it the way we should. If we want to quote somebody, we have to do that, right? Otherwise, we could be plagiarizing them. But in regular, everyday speech, we offer general thoughts while not quoting them verbatim. And we aren't the only culture to do this. At the time of the writing of the New Testament, Greek, the, the language, and written Greek uh, did not contain quotation marks, punctuation, or lowercase letters. There was no MLA format on how you would quote someone. Furthermore, it was completely acceptable to be quoting someone by simply including a correct representation of the content of their words rather than a perfect quotation. And so it's often the case that New Testament authors will quote Old Testament authors and they'll summarize their statement rather than quote it word for word. There are also word for word quotations, well-known passages. But even this is not a challenge to inerrancy. Again, the point is the truthfulness of the statement. The meaning of the statement is still accurate even when loose quotations are present. And you also have to take into consideration the, the reality that certain passages of Scripture from the Old Testament are interpreted in light of the coming of Christ. And those things do, in fact, grow in understanding. And some people will have problems with an Old Testament quotation in the New Testament not being 100% accurate. Sometimes the Hebrew is a little bit different than the, the Septuagint. I don't know if you know that, but the Old Testament in Jesus' day was actually had been translated into Greek, right? And that's called the Septuagint. And, and sometimes those translations were a little bit different. And it's often the case that Jesus will quote the Septuagint, right? Which gives us some confidence in that translation. But that was a common method of quotation. And that does not call into question the the fact that the Bible is without error. What do we do? Here's a question. What do we do when people claim that there are errors in the Bible? Have you ever been in a conversation with someone and you're trying to share the gospel with them or you're talking to them about your love of Christ or somehow the conversation shifts to a discussion on your faith and they just make this offhanded statement, well, you can't trust the Bible. The Bible's just not true. There's so many errors in the Bible. It's just so obvious. What do you say to a person like that? Have you ever had that experience? Gabe has. He's nodding his head like, yeah, yeah. What do you say? Or what do you do? Maybe say is not the right question. Well, the first thing is you say, well, can you, 
with an example because you can't defend in generality. Good point. Yep. Can't defend in generality. Be clear. What do you mean? Yeah. Some of them are just obvious uh, states of interpretation. Okay. You know, Sunday school you know, kids would know better. Um, and other, but other times they are they're, they're challenging. That's not the same thing as, as saying that it's terrible. It's just a difficult passage. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know if y'all heard everything Gabe said, but it, it just really depends. It might be that this individual doesn't understand the purpose of that passage. They don't understand what that passage means. Uh, they don't have a, a biblical foundation or they, they're, they're not operating from a biblical worldview, and therefore you have the opportunity to answer that question. Well, it, it actually means this. It doesn't mean that. And it's connected to this passage of Scripture. All the more reason for us to know our Bibles well. But it also may be that a person, not necessarily pointing out errors in Scripture, there may be something else they're doing. They may be disagreeing with Scripture. Well, that's different than pointing out an error in Scripture. I think it's important for us in that position to listen well. And like Gabe said, ask questions like, what do you mean? And help me understand the errors that you're talking about, the things that you are thinking of. And find out what the claim is that they're making. Because those claims can fall into what I would understand to be different categories. Like if a person was claiming that the Bible is wrong because the morality of the Bible is wrong, well, guess what they didn't do? They didn't prove that the Bible was in error. They just proved that they don't like the morality of the Scriptures. That's a different argument. That's, that's not calling into question the authenticity and clarity and inerrancy of Scripture. That's calling into question their judgment of God's authority or their judgment of the morality of God. It's often the case that skeptics will claim that some aspect of God's character is morally wrong. Well, that's not calling the Bible into error as much as it is, I don't like the, the morality of the passage. At other times, people will make claims about small errors or seemingly inconsistencies um, that can maybe be explained by you or maybe can be explained or have been explained by churchmen and theologians and pastors for centuries. There are very few difficult passages in Scripture that haven't been addressed and addressed ad nauseum by the church. So if you don't have a copy of a book like this, I would highly recommend that you have one. This is a book called Hard Sayings of the Bible. This is by Kaiser, Davids, Bruce, and Brow. It's InterVarsity Press. It's an academic work. Uh, but if you're a serious student of Scripture, uh, and, and there are smaller versions of this, this one is essentially the whole Bible and, and any particular passages, not just those that people might claim that this is a problem, but even some that are hard to interpret. So this is good for you as you're studying Scripture. What do faithful Bible scholars say is a good interpretation of this passage or this phrase or what have you? It's not just for the skeptic. This is really good for Bible study. And there are some smaller ones you might pick up. Hard sayings of the Bible. Having something like that on hand. Let's say one of your, one of your children comes to you and, and they, they had this professor in college or they've been online searching around and they find all this stuff and, and they start making these claims and you like, I don't really know where to start. Well, go to a mature believer. Come to one of your elders. Maybe there's someone else in your life that you reach out to and you can say, hey, man, where do I start here? I'm, I'm just not as equipped for this as I need to be. Well, there are people that would be willing to sit down and talk with you and help you on that. Um, and there's also some resources out there. Because like I said, I don't know that I've come across a question that has been asked um, that hasn't been addressed multiple times in a very clear and cogent and faithful way, even though people might not like the answer, um, those answers are available. Maybe you haven't seen that, maybe you haven't heard about those. But as people ask those questions, or people make those claims, let's try to understand the claim that they're making. Let's categorize it, and let's address it as we can uh, according to how it needs to be addressed. Here's another question. What happens if we deny inerrancy? What happens if we just say, you know what, I don't buy all these arguments you're making. Numero you know, the numbers and all that really matter to me. They matter in a different way than they did to that culture. 
uh, loose quotations, I just can't abide that. You know, I've, I've got to go somewhere else. What, what happens if we deny the inerrancy of Scripture? If we deny inerrancy, we begin to wonder if we can trust God's Word at all. If we deny inerrancy, then we get to choose what we will accept as truth and reject what we don't. If we deny inerrancy, then we make our own human minds a higher standard of truth than God's Word. And so many other things. If we deny inerrancy, the authority of the Scripture is diminished. I hope you can see that. And the reason that I wanted to take the time to talk about inerrancy, even though it's something that most of us have heard about, is that I really think it's an important doctrine. We believe that every word that comes from the mouth of God that is recorded in the Scriptures is without error in its original manuscripts. And every bit of it is intended by God to be for our edification. There's a reason why I preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And not just me, but as a church, we're committed to that. Right? Nick, you preached here for I don't know how many years, and you were committed to the same thing. Because this church is committed to the inerrancy of Scripture. We believe that every word is important, even the little prepositions. Right? So, there's so much that can fall apart if we deny inerrancy. And one of those things is the absolute authority of Scripture in our lives. So now that we talked about inerrancy, and you may have some questions about this, but I'm going to move on just so we can get done. If you want to talk about it afterwards, I'm glad to do that. But let's talk about biblical authority. Inerrancy and authority go together. If the Bible is inerrant, then it is also authoritative. How do we define biblical authority? Here's a definition. The authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Christians believe in the authority of Scripture, at least in some sense, right? If we're holding on to Christ as our Savior who saves us from sin and, and guarantees us eternal life with Him, if that's what our hope is, and that's the hope of a Christian, then at some level, we're assuming that the Bible is authoritative. At least it's authoritative in that. But the question is, how do we understand the Bible's authority? What is the source of the Bible's authority? Are there, the, are there limits to the Bible's authority? Why do many people reject the Bible's authority? And then finally, how does the Bible's authority impact our lives as believers? Now, I'm going to try to move through this a little bit quicker than I did in Aaronsee. What is the source of the Bible's authority? Anyone want to take a stab at that? What's that? You want to say it a third time? God is the source of the Bible's authority. The ultimate reason why the Scripture is authoritative is because it's God's Word. Divine authorship gives the Bible its inherent authority. And we see this truth borne out um, throughout the history of the Christian faith and, and the documents that are written, especially once you get to the Reformation and beyond. There's some questions about the Roman Catholic understanding of authority, and we'll get to that in a minute. But here's one. This is from the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. The authority of the Holy Scriptures obligates belief in them. This authority does not depend on the testimony of any person or church but on God the author alone, who is truth itself. Therefore, the scriptures are to be received because they are the word of God. Now, I'm sure you've heard pastors say that. Maybe you heard us talk about that in covenant class. But have you ever really thought deeply about the implications of the Bible's authority as being the word from God? The scriptures have absolute authority because God has absolute authority. And his scripture is his personal word to us. Think about it. Just, just kind of let your mind go back to the scriptures and, and think all the way back from Genesis about how God speaks to us and what that means. From the very beginning of the Bible, we are told that it is God, our creator, who is speaking. He speaks the universe into creation. He brings order and direction into that creation by his word. And then he speaks decisively to establish his authority over mankind. He gives Adam direction and instruction and commands. He gives the same thing to Cain, even though both Adam and Cain broke that law. He gives those directions to Noah. He gives direction to Abraham. And in each case, the authority of his word is unquestionable. Those individuals disobey God, but then they're held accountable by God for disobeying his word. And as we move on throughout the Scriptures, we see a recurring phrase 
that comes up to help us know that God is still speaking. It's in the Old Testament. It's something that you see when you read the prophets, and they will. it'll say something like, Thus saith the Lord. You've seen that phrase? Or in modern English, thus says the Lord. I don't know why I learned that in the King James Version, but there it is. Thus says the Lord. This phrase appears hundreds of times, and the cumulative force of these statements demonstrate that we, as the reader, are, under, are, are reading the written record of God's word to us, God's unquestionable speech to his people. Thus saith the Lord. When this phrase occurs, we know God is speaking. But what about those times when we don't see that phrase? What about those historical records and psalms and poems and proverbs? Is God still speaking then, even though we don't see that phrase, thus says the Lord? Absolutely. As we move into the New Testament and we see the ministry of Jesus and we see Jesus affirm all of the scriptures, as we see Jesus say things like, not one jot or tittle, not one iota or dot will depart from the law of God until all is fulfilled. What he's saying there is even the punctuation is from God. When we move from Jesus to the New Testament apostles, um, we see them, the, the gospels are written, the, the birth and the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and, and all of that is communicated to us. And then the apostles go and they declare with absolute authority that there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. They proclaim Jesus as the Son of God, the final and supreme authority. And they rested their lives and their message upon His authority. And His authority was all wrapped up in the fact that He fulfilled the Old Testament. The authority of the Old Testament was was justified by his being and his presence and his ministry. And then everything that flowed out of that, interestingly enough, also bears the authority of God's speech. Even the apostles, when they write, they understand themselves to be communicating along the lines of the Old Testament scriptures with the same authority of God. How many of y'all are familiar with, let's see, Second Peter 3? 2 Peter 3. This is one of those places where I just really identify with what Peter says. He's talking about Paul's letters. You remember this passage? Here's what he says. Um, he says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and, and count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. And there are some things, I love that he says this about Paul, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. You ever felt that way when you're reading Romans? Like, I don't really know what you're getting at here. There are some things in his letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now, he just acknowledged a couple of things there. He acknowledged that Paul is difficult to understand, but he also just acknowledged that Paul's writings are on par with the other scriptures. The Old Testament and the New Testament must be viewed as a whole, and both of them together make up what we call the Bible, the Holy Bible. In 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture, Old and New Testament, prophet, priests, apostles, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction and training in righteousness. 2 Peter 1.20, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The ultimate source of every word in the Bible is God Himself. And since this is God's word from beginning to end, it carries His authority. The authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's word in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. All right, question. Are there limits to the Bible's authority? Roman Catholic author, theologian, and apologist Peter Kreeft answers this question from the Roman Catholic position. How many of y'all are fairly familiar with Roman Catholic understanding of authority? Okay, we've got a few. I expected a little bit of that. He says this, The church gives us her tradition, 
like a mother giving a child hand-me-down clothing that has already been worn by many older brothers and sisters. But unlike any earthly clothing, this clothing is indestructible because it is made of truth. He just said that the church's tradition is indestructible. It was invented by God, not man. Sacred tradition must be distinguished from all human traditions as part of the deposit of faith, which also includes sacred scripture. So for those of you who, who understand the battle that's going on here, he just identified two sources of authority, sacred scripture and sacred tradition. Scripture has authority in Roman Catholic life, but not soul authority. Sacred tradition reigns at its side for the Roman Catholic. And therefore, for the Roman Catholic, the authority of Scripture is limited by the fathers. It's limited by the popes. It's limited by interpretation. I don't agree with that, by the way. Just, just so we know, I'm, I am standing strongly in the Reformed tradition. Roman Catholics limit the Bible's authority by adding to it the authority of tradition. What about liberal theology? Liberal theology has elevated human reason and experience over the scriptures in terms of final authority. Here's a, a liberal theologian in Gary Dorian. The essential idea of liberal theology is that all claims to truth must be made on the basis of human reason and experience, not by appeal to an external authority. And by external authority there, he means the Bible. In other words, we get to determine what is true. The Bible can't tell us what is ultimately true. He goes on and says, Christian scripture may be recognized as spiritually authoritative. They are limiting the, the authority of scripture. It's spiritually authoritative within Christian experience, but its word does not settle or establish truth claims about matters of fact. What this means is that the scripture can speak with authority when we want it to, but when we want it to say something else, we say, well, that's not true. For liberal theologians, God's authority has been supplanted and replaced with the authority of man. This is not new. As your pastor and as an elder in this church, I, we absolutely reject both of these ideas. Absolutely. We believe that the Bible is the final and only authority. It stands in judgment of human reason. It reigns over all tradition. We learned a few weeks ago as we looked at Psalm 19 that God has given us two books, the book of nature and the book of Scripture. Nature reveals much, but Scripture reigns as the authoritative book of God. So here's our cornerstone statement of faith. God has graciously disclosed His existence and power in the created order and has supremely revealed Himself to fallen human beings in the person of His Son, the incarnate Word, Jesus Christ. God has also inspired the words of the Scriptures, the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. These writings alone constitute the Word of God, which is authoritative and without error in the original writings and is complete, sufficient, and final in its authority over every domain of knowledge to which it speaks. I know that's a big statement. And I hope you noticed that I've tried to, we, we tried to put in all of the, the, the little phrases, the things that we've been talking about as we're building our understanding of the role of Scripture. This paragraph makes that clear. What do you believe, real quick? And then we'll get to, I think I've got two more points. I'll try to fly through this. What do you think? What do you believe to be the clear implications of accepting biblical authority? And what do you think are clear implications of rejecting biblical authority? I think that's where the uh, by what standard comes in. Okay. Any other thoughts? What are some implications of this? Go ahead. Uh, I would just say if if you accept that the Bible is the authoritative word of God, then it would really motivate you to know what does it say. Like, uh, you know, because pe people have heard many different things from you know from different traditions. The Bible says this, the Bible says that, and you, you know, there's only one way to find out. If, well, is that true? Uh, am I not allowed to wear jeans to church or whatever? You know, whatever it is, it, as inconsequential or as life changing as it may be. Um, you better go find out, right? Because yeah. um, if you know if you're disobeying the scripture, you're disobeying God, right? So, uh, yeah, that's I think that's a big thing. Yeah. 
There's some huge implications. We all come into life um, with certain presuppositions, certain things. Maybe every time I sit down with a, a young couple that's about to get married, we start talking about the fact that you have this little sphere of your existence and how you do the dishes and how this happens and how you speak to one another and you have your little sphere. When those spheres clash, boy, it can be challenging and y'all have to figure out how to make this work. You've got to figure out, you know, what, what way are we going to do this? And at some level, we, as believers, we have to do the same thing. We have these thoughts. We have these ideas. We've learned as we've grown up in our home. We've learned as we've grown up through education. We've learned from culture. And, and when we become believers, we have to, understanding, if we accept the biblical authority, then all of a sudden, all of those things have to be, you know, kind of measured by Scripture's truth. So we have to know that truth, and then we have to begin to apply that truth. How we spend our money, how we spend our time, what we put in front of us, how we raise our children, how we talk to our neighbors or don't talk to our neighbors, whether we go the speed limit or just a little bit over, whether we cheat on our taxes or not, all of those things are called into question by what the Bible actually says. When I first became a believer, I had been taught all of my life, even though I, had, I, was, I became a believer in college, I was 21, and so all of my life, I had been taught that the Bible is the Word of God. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and they were in the middle of the, the inerrancy debates within Southern Baptist life, and it was not uncommon for my pastor to hold his Bible up and say, this is the Word of God. You can trust every word of it. Every word of it is true, and every time you read it, God is speaking to you. And so when I became a believer, I just assumed that the Bible was true. And so I just started reading the Bible, and then I would go to church. Maybe you've been here before. I'd go to church, and we'd be having a conversation, and, and they'd be arguing about something, and I would say, well, no, I don't think that's right, because the Bible says this. And my pastor finally said, all right, well, you need to go help out with the youth. Why don't you go over there and go hide with them? But my, my theme verse was 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test everything and hold fast to what is good. And at some level, if we accept the, the Bible's authority, we have to adopt that. You can't, you can't hope to grow. You can't hope to be consistent with that claim and not know Scripture and be applying it. Justin? Yes, sir. In terms of even the implication of accepting the authority of Scripture, I am so mindful tonight, you know, that Scripture has... It says in Hebrews 4.11, For the word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged suit, piercing to the vision of the soul and of the spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The scripture is a supernatural creation of God. It's God breathed. It is life-changing. It is something that a believer who has faith in it, he wants to. He wakes up hungry to get to it and be fed by it. It is nurturing. It is our life. And to have faith in the Scriptures as being authoritative is, is, is beyond our comprehension because there is no other literature out there that affects the life and changes the heart and changes the mind and changes the direction of a person like the Scripture. Yeah. It's just awesome, and that's an understatement. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Nick. Thank you for saying that. As you, yeah, I'll often say this from the pulpit. These are these are not just dead words on a page. This is living and active. This is God moving. And as a new believer, I mentioned earlier, as a new believer, I just assumed and took for granted that the Bible is true, and therefore I tried to read it. Now that didn't mean that I understood it. I started in Genesis, and whenever I got into the names, I, what have I gotten myself into? And I had a, a, a wise, older, more mature Christian that said, well, hey, why don't you read Mark first? You know, and my whole mentality was you start at page one and you work your way through it. And I was determined to do that. And he said, well, look, press pause there, put a bookmark there, go, go to the Gospel of Mark and read that. You'll be able to understand it a little more clearly. And he was right. And I was able to ingest the milk of the Word. And as time went on, I was able to enjoy the meat of the Word and then be sustained by both. 
over decades of walking with the Lord. So yeah, and, and the more and more that we study the Word, the more that we read the Word, the more that we grow to understand the Word, the more we hunger for it. At various times of life, whether I'm ministering to my neighbor or ministering to my children or grieving the loss of a loved one or helping someone who's grieving the loss of the loved one, the Scriptures become food for all of those different you know, facets of life. And the fact that it is without error, we can trust it. It's clear and understandable. The fact that it is authoritative, it's the Word of God, and we can not only trust it, but we can walk in it and know that it's going to accomplish God's good purpose in us. All of those things just give us confidence. A couple of additional thoughts. Why do so many people reject the Bible's authority, even those who profess to be Christians? Well, I think Christy hit on it earlier. There's at least, well, I think there's two ways that we can answer this question. There's, all right, what does the Bible say about why people reject its authority? And then what are some personal reasons or practical reasons? Biblically, the Bible says that men and women suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So one of the, and that's Romans 1.18, one of the main reasons that people, biblically speaking, will reject the authority of Scripture is because of the sinfulness of our hearts. Right? We reject the truth. All of mankind has some innate knowledge of truth. The Bible says in Romans 2 that God has written His law on our hearts. And He says He has written His law on our hearts in such a way that we are without excuse. Like if God was to judge us and we were to say, well, but I never knew, he would say, oh yeah, you did. I wrote it on your heart. So we have some innate knowledge of the truth of God written on our hearts, but we suppress that truth. We choose to believe the lie rather than the truth of God, Romans 1 continues to say. But there are some practical reasons why people reject the authority of God. Some reject it because they don't fully understand it. Some reject it because it gets in the way of their sinful desires. And on the rare occasion, some people are willing to admit it. How many of you are familiar with the name Aldous Huxley? Brave New World. Probably not a bad time to read that book. There's some some interesting overlaps between that book and our modern day. Well, Aldous Huxley was a democratic socialist, um, and he wrote more than just Brave New World. Here's a quote from Huxley, being very honest about why he rejects the Bible's authority. For myself, as for my most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. He's talking about the, the meaninglessness that comes from um, understanding that all of existence cosmologically is just, um, it's just material. There is no supernatural reality. He, he's, he's living in that world. He says... This provided liberation, and the liberation we desired was simultaneously from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. He wrote this. He was championed by his peers. But Huxley makes it clear that he rejected the truth and authority of a biblical worldview because it interfered with his sexual freedom. He, like so many, rejected the words of eternal life for the fleeting pleasures of a few years of sexual sin. And he didn't reject the Bible because he had studied it and found it to be untrue in some empirical way, or at least he doesn't say that in this quote. And he didn't reject it because of deep intellectual convictions that it was with error. He rejected it because it confronted him over his immorality. Now, Huxley was an intellectual, and there are plenty of people today who aren't intellectuals, and they've rejected the Bible for the same reason. This notion is very alive and well in our culture today. It's nothing new. It's been happening since the time of the early church. Jesus was rejected because his authority threatened the authority of the Pharisees and the scribes. The apostles and their word, that they, the word that they preached, was rejected because it threatened to undermine the status quo in Jerusalem. As the gospel began to spread throughout the Roman world by Paul and other missionaries, their 
word was not, not completely rejected, but largely rejected because it was turning the world upside down. They said that in some of the cities they went to. And the authority that people had was being challenged by the authority of Scripture. But we do have, and this is going to be the last thing we talk about, we do have some examples in Scripture where individuals um, didn't reject the authority of Scripture, but they built their understanding upon the authority of Scripture. This is a lot a passage that you might be familiar with, but let's turn there if you have your Bibles. Acts 17, this will serve as kind of our conclusion. Acts chapter 17. Paul's moving through different places. He goes to Thessalonica in chapter 17, 1 through 9, and then he leaves Thessalonica. And in chapter 17, so this is Acts 17, starting in verse 10, it says, And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So what do we see here? And, and to answer the question of how does the Bible's authority impact our life, we have to ask, what do we see here? These men and women in Berea were eager to examine the Scriptures in order to check the accuracy of Paul's message. In other words, they said, all right, I'm hearing your message that the Messiah has come. I'm hearing your message that Jesus is the Son of God who lived, died, and rose again. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing this, but our presupposition is that the Bible has authority to help us determine whether or not your statement is true or false. They were resting their confidence in the authority of the Scriptures, and they examined the Scriptures, and we would have understood that to be the Old Testament Scriptures, to see if Paul's message rung true. And if it did... If the Scripture supported Paul's message, they wanted to accept it. They were willing to hear the Gospel and believe the Gospel so long as it was consistent with God's Word. Their submission to the authority of God's Word led them to embrace Jesus as the Messiah and follow Him as Lord. In other words, they said this, if the Bible says it, we believe it. Because they trusted the Bible was authoritative. It is authoritative. The Scriptures have the last word, the final word. And our posture is to understand it, to believe it, and submit to it. So, let me ask the obvious question. How are we doing in our application of the authority of Scripture? Fox News does not have the final say in how we are to live our lives, nor does CNN or whatever YouTuber we like. Hollywood is not our final authority. The current moral climate of our culture is not the final word on how we are to live as Christians. That position belongs to God's word alone. Is your life being shaped by God's word? Are we growing in our understanding and application of it? Are we loving our neighbors well? Are we learning to love the Lord more? Are we serving in ways that are consistent with Scripture? Because the Scriptures don't just give us facts. The Scriptures help us understand what it means to have a relationship with the Lord. And that relationship is going to be shaped in all different facets. Are we growing in this? Are we growing in our obedience to the authority of God's Word in our lives on a daily basis? This, the theology of Scripture must not just remain on the pages of our books. It must jump from those pages and impact our lives. And Scripture's authority is to affect every aspect of life. So, I hope that that's an encouragement to you. Let me pray for us, and then we'll talk some more. You might have some questions, but let's pray together. Father, I do thank you for your Word, and I thank you for this time to discuss it, to think about it, to understand all of these different facets of it. I pray that we would be those who trust the inerrancy of Scripture and submit ourselves to the authority of Scripture. I pray that we would be those who take it up and read it, like Nick mentioned, that we would be hungry for it. I pray that we would feast on the milk and the meat of the Word, and that we, by it we may grow to 
know you and love you and to serve you, that we may love others and love our neighbors well, that we may be firm in our convictions and humble in our posture. Lord, I do pray that we would continue to be a church that upholds the authority of your word and preaches it with power and boldness. And I pray that you would accomplish your purpose through that, that you would bear fruit in our hearts and that others would come to know you through that ministry. We thank you for this time and we pray you bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. By the way, I'll say it again. Um, anybody wants these notes, I'll be glad to share them with you. Nick, do you want to do it? Yes, ma'am. Thank you. You sure can. So good. So good. Rich. Wow. It's been fun. Oh, let me let y'all know what's what's coming up. So next week, Jeff's going to be in here. Jeff's going to teach on the canonicity of Scripture. Like, how did we get the Bible? How did we determine, you know, what falls within the approved canon of Scripture? He's going to talk about the history of that. And, um and then after that, we're going we're gonna to take a step from bibliology and get into theology proper. We're going to start looking at the character and nature of God. There's no way we're going to do all of systematic theology in 12 weeks, right? So just, just understand we'll probably get through, the, or we'll, we'll get through one category and we'll begin another category. But we're going to talk about the incommunicable attributes of God. Uh, we'll talk about the mercy and grace and love and sovereignty of God. We'll talk about all kinds of things. Uh, it'll be a lot of fun, so I hope you'll come back and, 